Who's feeling good tonight? You feeling good? And if you're not, it's okay. Bring your sadness into the space, and hopefully we'll transform it to some joy tonight. Um, thank you, Rabbi Mari. Thank you, Joe Miller. Thank you, Tabakai, as always, for being our wonderful hosts and partners. We have a delightful, delightful evening with Rabbi Kushner, who I've been privileged to spend this afternoon with. Got to know his daughter a little bit as well. His books are for sale outside, if you haven't already, uh, already picked them up. Wonderfully transformative. It's rare that you have a transformative writer and a transformative educators, and uh, we, ha we have that tonight. Um, someone else is going to be introducing him, and so I'm not going to say, say much more than that. Um, I just uh, want to introduce uh, our, our, uh, our introducer tonight, uh, Kena Hammerman, who holds a PhD in Jewish history and culture from the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. She has taught Jewish film, literature, religion, and cultural history universities, museums, libraries, and adult education programs. Her book, Black Hat, Silver Screen, The Chassid in Film, will be published next year by Indiana University Press. She's a scholar and a delightful person who is going to uh, speak for a few minutes about her parents and, uh, and also introduce our speaker tonight. I, I just want to know briefly, although it's really her task tonight, how delighted it has been, how big of a delight it has been in being in this town now for almost uh, three years uh, to get to know the Hammermans and, uh, and who are instrumental in bringing me here, instrumental in VBM, instrumental in expanding Jewish education in the Valley. Delightful not only to learn from their wisdom and vision, but to become deep friends and uh, deeply appreciative of who they are as human beings and who they are as Jewish leaders in the community. So this is our first inaugural, inaugural Hammerman lecture series. If you haven't already supported it, we encourage you to support it. So we can continue to have wonderful lectures in the name of this family and what they do. So with that, Shana Hamlin. Thank you, Shmuley. Um, it's actually fitting that I'm here tonight because I was present at the original Hammerman Family Lecture Series, where we covered topics such as by weeknight curfew and the <laughs> merits of attending high school economics. <laughs> But nothing for Cheryl and Stan Hammerman is quite so final. It's appropriate to my parents' Jewish story that the past few weeks we've been reading a portion of Exodus all about the details of constructing the Mishkan, which is essentially the mobile synagogue that the Israelites carried through the wilderness. The Torah readings contain many elaborate details about the Mishkan's design, which kinds of gems to use, what color thread, precise measurements for each piece. And last Shabbat's Parsha contained a compelling line about the poles that are used to carry the ark. The Torah says, the poles shall remain in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. And Rashi explained that this meant le'olam, forever. Even when the children of Israel built the temple in Jerusalem, the poles for carrying the ark remained in place. Why would Jews need their ark to be portable when they reached their final destination and laid down their deepest roots? I don't think it's because the Torah predicted the impermanence of Jewish life in any one location and the need for Jews to pick up and leave, although that ended up being a constant Instead, I'd like to suggest that the poles were there to remain in place as a reminder that the Jewish journey continues even when Jews are no longer wandering Jews, that Jewishness itself must not be left to stagnate. My parents have lived their Jewish lives in exactly that way. They have deep, well-loved, long-tended roots in the greater Phoenix area where they've lived and worked for over 40 years. So 
some of you have actually known them for at least that long. But their Jewish journey continues and they've never been stagnant. They began with young leadership, built a Chavarah, formed a few other Chavarot, joined at least one by osmosis. My dad has been synagogue president, my mom on the United Synagogue Board, they founded their own synagogue. Their journey truly never stops. I remember when a babysitter would come so that they could go to Hebrew class, even though they both worked all day. I remember the smell of popcorn when the Chavarah would come over and they would pour over some biblical text for commentary. It's no great coincidence that my sister and I both became teachers of Jewish history. Our parents modeled for us what it means to be Jewish learners. And their work as Jewish learners never settles. My dad saw a need for sophisticated, cross-denominational community learning, so he and my mom founded Valley Beit Midrash. My dad listens to rabbi podcasts in the car. I'm not kidding. He quoted a couple of them tonight. Uh, it's in us. Um, last year, my mom learned how to bake challah. She's actually chairing a Jewish rock concert this weekend. Get your tickets now. <laughs> Just this year, she found something new to explore, the Phoenix Jewish Film Festival, which, uh, where she now serves as a board member, also happening now. Get your tickets. Um, tonight's first annual Hammerman Family Lecture is an honor for them, but it is not their end game. On behalf of my sister Jessica and my brother Eli Mazlico, mom and dad, we can't wait to see what you do next. But before we move on to the next thing, we get to enjoy tonight's lecture by the prolific Rabbi Lawrence Kushner. Rabbi Kushner has served as the scholar in residence at Congregation Emmanuel in San Francisco for nearly 15 years. He continues to teach at Hebrew Union College in Los Angeles, and he reaches the widest possible audience as a regular commentator on NPR's All Things Considered, uh, and with a library of over a dozen books on sale today. You get doubles, you can trade them with your friends. <laughs> <laughs> you can find plenty of information about Rabbi Kushner online, and by reading his books, where he's known to bring personal stories and experiences to complex mystical teachings. But among the most exciting things I came to learn about Rabbi Kushner include the fact that after a 50-year hiatus, he returned to art, making a concerted effort to complete two oil paintings a week. He also recently wrote, starred in, and produced a feature-length film about a friendship between a widowed rabbi and a failed pornographer. Sounds good, right? Famous for making esoteric topics like Kabbalah, spirituality, and mysticism accessible and even funny, Rabbi Kushner will speak to us tonight about one of the great Hasidic Rebbe's teachings about the Olivet. Like the Mishkan of our Torah readings, which the Israelites are instructed to build cubit by cubit, thread by thread, there's a richness in even the smallest details of Jewish thought down to a single letter. It is my privilege to launch the first annual Hammerman Family Lecture. Please join me in welcoming Rabbi Lawrence Kushner. Schmerl and, uh, and the uncle are fascinated with what happens after you die. And uh, they read all the books they can find, no help. They talk to all the gedolim, nobody knows. They sign a solemn pact that whoever goes first will stop at nothing to try to contact the surviving member of the duo and let them know what it's like in the Olamo. Schmerl dies first. Young, I'm good, thank you. Uh, the uncle is uh, 
six shiver, the shloshim, the whole thing, you know, two, three years go by. One night, gets a phone call. Yonkel, is that you? He says, yeah. He says, tell me what it's like. He says, oh, it's wonderful. He said, I want to know everything. He says, how, how do you do it? He said, well, he said, I, I sleep late. I, I have a big breakfast, and then I make love. He says, really? He says, yeah. He says, then I, I go out into the fields, and I usually make love again. He says, again? He says, yeah, then, then I come back. I have a light lunch. I take a nap. After my nap, I make love. Again? He says, yeah, then... Then, then I, you know, I, I, have a, I have a big dinner, and sometimes I go out into the fields, and, and, and I make love again. He says, and that's what it's like in the Olam Haba? He says, Olam Haba, I'm a rabbit in Minnesota. absolutely nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> uh, what, I, what I want to do instead is uh, to talk to you about something that's, well, how can I put it? Um, oh, I know. It, this is how you can watch your friendly neighborhood liberal Christian self-destruct in front of your own eyes. Okay? You have to do it nonchalant. What you say is, by the way, was Jesus a god or a person? And they'll go nuts, right in front of your eyes. They'll jump all around, they'll make up excuses. Now, you may not know this, but at the very same time, their priests and ministers are saying to them, I can tell you how to make your friendly neighborhood liberal Jew go nuts in front of your very eyes. And they say, how? You say, all you got to do is say, when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, did God talk to him or did he make it up? And the Jews will go nuts every time. <laughs> um, let's just, to get a sense of the room, try to figure out what we think really transpired at Mount Sinai. Uh, how many people think, we'll start with the most traditional possible answer, that the oral and the written law, the, the entire Tanakh, and also the Mishnah and the Gemara, the whole Talmud, were given on Mount Sinai. Anybody, anybody want to raise his or her hand for that? Well, I mean, it's a respectable traditional position. I got one, all right. How about, how about just the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible? We gave up with the oral, just the written one. Anybody think God gave most of the Bible? I got a maybe. I got a maybe. maybe. This is a very liberal crowd. Oh, another okay, maybe fine. I mean, I, I, I would I think it's a very responsible position to take. Okay, how about just the five books, the Torah? God gave Moses the Torah on Mount Sinai. Got one. Wow, a, fair, a couple people in the back. All right, don't. Don't be intimidated by these happy person here. <laughs> okay, uh, how about the ten utterances at Sinai? How many people think that God gave Moses the ten? No, 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 that was, he came down and God says, 
a good news and bad news. He says, what's the, what's the good news? He says, he says uh, I got him down to 10. <laughs> hey, what's the bad news? He left in adultery. <laughs> no, the other, the, other, the other one was is that there were originally supposed to be 26 books of Moses, but volumes 11 through 26 were on home improvement and repair, and the Jews never got those. <laughs> now, how many people think that God gave the 10 utterances on sight? Not bad, I, uh, thank you. The, the, uh, you notice I said utterances and not commandments. Because the first one, the way Jews number them, which is different than the way Christians do, the way the Jews number them is the first one is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, period. To which the Jews say, Okay, <laughs> I'm Schneider, I'm a tailor, it's nice to meet you. I mean, there's no, the first one is not a commandment in the way Jews number them. The first, so the safest thing, I love somebody, I'm a great Jew, I follow the Ten Commandments. I would say if you were such a good Jew, you'd know there are only nine in a thing. <laughs> we, we don't know what to do with that first one. So, well, we can play around with it a little bit more. Um, just in a little bit of gematria here. Um, this is kind of fun. Do you know what, if you know what gematria is, raise your hand. Oh, a lot of people know gematria. For people who don't, real quickly, gematria is another way of extracting yet even more wisdom and learning out of the Hebrew text. And it does that by saying every Hebrew letter has a numerical equivalent based on its sequential place in the Hebrew alphabet. If you know the Hebrew alphabet, you too can do Gemara. Aleph is one, Bet is two, Gimel is three, Dalit is four, till you get to Yud, which is 10, then it goes by tens. Kaf is 20, Lamed is 30, Mem is 40, till you get to Kuf, which is 100, then it goes by hundreds. Reish is 200, Shin is 300, Tav is 400, you're out of letters. But every Hebrew word, therefore, is a number. Now, what do you think, real quickly, what do you think the Gematria for the word Torah is. I'll give you a clue. Taf is 400, Resh is 200. What do you think it's gonna be? Ha-ha, <laughs> yep, six and five, six, 11. Ha-ha, I got you all. <laughs> Wait a minute, what the rabbi said. You're telling me that the gematria for the word Torah is too shy from the big number? Moish, get the calculator again. Let's see if we can figure this out. No, it turns out that the rabbis say, well, no, as a matter of fact, God gave Moses a Torah. Torah tziva lanu, Moshe. Moses gave us a Torah. Which is the tradition's way of doing a little sidestep around what God really gave. It says, well, actually, 611 613ths were human. That is, Moses wrote it. God sort of talked to Moses, but they're not quite God. But two, we got Mipi Hagvura from God's mighty mouth directly. And those first two are the first two utterances in Sinai. The first one we already talked about, which is I'm God. 
And the other one, which is really just the other side of the same piece of paper, you can't have any other gods. That's basically what we got at Sinai, according to that tradition. I'm God, don't have any others. If you can't have any others, then I'm God. If I'm God, you can't have any others. Basically, God gets everybody together at Mount Sinai, says, I got two things to tell you. <laughs> Number one, I'm God. Number two, you're not. <laughs> get your coat, Sylvia, that's all we need to know. <laughs> In other words, if you could get that, well, it strikes us as being kind of neat. Uh, two things, but notice what's going on in this little riff that we're doing here. Our spiritual predecessors are aware of the problem of what God gave at Sinai. I'd love to say God said it, you know, like I'm talking to you, God spoke. Might have, most of the time I'm not sure, you know. But I like that idea that what happened at Mount Sinai, that we all who were there, even with those of us who weren't yet born, heard was, I'm God, you're not. And once we got that straight, we could fill in all the rest. Now, but we're not done. There's another rabbi in this big, long, millennial discussion that goes on that says, nah, God didn't give the first two. God only gave the first one, which isn't even a commandment. God says, my card, God, three slaves call any time. That was it. Well, that's not bad. I mean, if God could say anything, that would freeze you. Not just political slavery, but social slavery, psychological slavery. Don't raise your hands. You know, when the going gets tough, the tough go shopping. You know, whatever you want to, whatever enslaves you. God says, check in with me. I'm in the slave freeing business. That's who your God is. There's another guy there says, no, God didn't even give the first utterance. All God gave was the first word of the first utterance, which is the Hebrew word anochi. Aleph, nun, chaf, yud. It's the old Hebrew form of I. Modern Hebrew is ani. It's like English you and thou. God got everybody together and said, <coughs> he cleared his throat. <coughs> Anochi. Whoa! The universe could utter the first person pronoun singular. The universe must have a self. That's all I need to know. I'm done. I'm out of here. Thank Moses, you can take care of the rest of it. All I need to know is that that universe could say I like I try to say I. Well, there's one other guy there, which blows me away every time. I, I read this as a young, a young rabbinic student once. Said, no, God didn't give the Torah and the Talmud. God didn't give just the Bible. God didn't just give the Torah. God didn't give the ten utterances. God didn't give the first two. God didn't give the first one. God didn't give the first word and the first one. All God gave was the first letter of the first one, which is the Hebrew letter Aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which, surprise, curveball, are you ready, does not have no sound. As Gershom Sholem, the master historian of Kabbalah, points out, the sound of Aleph is the noise the larynx makes as it clicks into gear. It is therefore the mother of all articulate speech. It is the softest yet audible noise that can be made 
any other noise will drown it out. And according to the Midrash at Sinai, the birds did not chirp, the oxen did not low, the angels did not shout kadosh, the sea did not roar, and all the Jews heard was Aleph. And according to the Zohar, the Aleph is a seed in which the whole Torah is enwrapped. And what it means to be a Jew is we spend our lives unpacking the Torah, that the Aleph. I love the image. I don't know. I just a dynamite image. Especially as a liberal Jew, because it solves the problem. God gave something, but it isn't quite as big as I thought. I mean, there's still a definite connection. I guess I have see again. 18th century, some guy figured this out already. He's way ahead of me. Beautiful idea. So I, right away, I call my Zohar tutor, Danny Matt. I hear he's coming next year. He's great. Don't miss him. They don't know that yet. <laughs> oh, they don't know that yet. They don't know he's coming yet. All right. Well, sorry. You didn't hear a word. Shmuley will announce it later. I said, you know about you know about this guy Mendel Torah Moraminov and this Aleph? He says, yeah, it's great. I said, do you know where the source is? He says, no, I can't find it. I looked everywhere. I called Art Green, major scholar of Hasidut, friend of mine. Art says, no, I can't find it either. It's a great story. I called Zalman Shachter Shalom. Zalman, you know about the Raminov? He says, yeah, I don't know. He says, I think Sholem made it up. It's too good. I can't. And I was crushed. And then, about 10 years ago, I'm sitting in the photocopying room at HUC in New York, and I just pull off a thing off the shelf. I'm waiting for a job to be done. And I see Mendel Torum of Ryman of Silent Aleph and a footnote on something. And I drop everything. I call Beagleizen. And he said, You got a safer called. Uh, he said, what do you want that for? I said, just send it to me. And I found the story that I just told you. I was ecstatic. But the best part is there's more to the story than what I told you. I found the original quote, and that's what we're going to do tonight. Okay? Somebody get the phone. <laughs> so what I'm going to I'm going to ask from you, though, is I, I, would you please all just raise your hands? Get them up. Come on. You're not voting. He's here. Repeat after me. I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. Under no circumstances. Under no circumstances. Will I read ahead? Will I read ahead? Okay. You're under oath. You can take it home. You can put it on the refrigerator. Don't read it. We'll all stay in the same place at the same time. Now, before we even start to try to read, I got to tell you just a little bit about how this kind of literature works, okay? Don't read ahead. I know it's tempting. It's okay. I know all. So the way the way this kind of literature works is, is that uh, the, the Rebbe would probably sit at a table, and he would begin with a uh, a passage from the uh, the Talmud or perhaps the weekly Torah portion, but most likely something obscure in the Midrash, and he'd talk about that, and he'd kibitz about it, and then he'd talk about something else. Maybe the equivalent reading off note cards and riffing on each one. That's how the literature comes down. Now, the literature that comes down this way has one major problem. It's given probably on Shabbos afternoon. So what's the problem if the teaching goes on Shabbos afternoon? You can't take notes. You can't write it down. So after Shabbos, the Hasidim would meet behind the shul in the weeds you know, and try to figure out what that guy said and translate it into Yiddish. 
You know, so by the time the stuff comes to us in English, in my translation, don't be surprised if it has a kind of a freeze-dried, telegraphic quality to it. And to make things worse, what he's going to try to do to keep the attention of his students, in this case, you're my students, is throw a verse out, and you're thinking, what the hell does that have to do with this? And then another verse, what the hell does that have? So if you wind up thinking, what the hell does this have to do? You're supposed to think that. <laughs> if the guy succeeds, by the time he's done, he ties it into a bow and you're laying on the floor gasping for air. I mean, like, oh my God, he tied it all together. He's told, oh, that's the sort of literature we're going to be reading now. Okay, And it starts with, uh, with two paragraphs from uh, the Midrash. And... Uh, uh, we won't have time, enough time to unpack them all. Would somebody like to read the first paragraph slowly, very slowly? It's English. <laughs> <laughs> Stop for a sec. Whenever you see small caps, that means we're quoting the Bible. Okay? Jews assume that the only worthwhile thing to read or think about is in the Bible. He doesn't quote anything else. Keep going. It is written, the Lord spoke with you face to face. Rabbi Nabini of Haifa said, 22,000 angels descended with God on Sinai. Stop there. What's his 22,000? Anybody want to make a, a guess as to why he likes 22,000? It's one key part to it. How many letters in the Hebrew alphabet? <laughs> Maybe missing up 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. It's easier English. It's easier than English because there's less letters. Than that. <laughs> so, 22, keep going. As it is said, the chariots of God are myriads, even thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in holiness. I don't get half of it. It's weird. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> What we know is not always, it was, it was talking, it was when she, the teaching was given in Shavuos. And uh, he's messing around with God, said, I'm the Lord your God, and you saw the Lord God face to face in 22, something about that. They do a lot of free associative thinking here. Somebody do the second paragraph, and then we'll get back to work. An Aleph and a Dalit. Now look up here. I got two names for God. There are a gazillion of them. But the lowermost name for God, bottom level, is uh, Aleph, Dalit, Nun, Yud. Adonai. It doesn't mean something very holy. What's your name? If I bumped into Murray on the street in Tel Aviv, I'd say, Slicha Adoni, Adonai. Excuse me, my lord, my good sir. It's not a very fancy name for God. As a matter of fact, it's an early version of Hashem. We don't want to say God's name, so we just say, my lord. That's what the Adonai name. So when he says the Aleph Dalad name, he's talking about Adonai. The other name, that's the big, mysterious, holy name of God. Uh, to appreciate that big name of God, let me just quickly teach you how to read Hebrew without the dots. I can do this on one foot, honest to God. 
Turns out there are that the Phoenicians gave us the alphabet. Everybody agrees. But less widely known, proven recently by Professor Joel Hoffman of New York University, published in a book called In the Beginning, it turns out, it turns out that uh, the Jews gave the vowels. I think that's kind of funny, actually, because when you that's what we take the vowel, and turns out there are three consonants in Hebrew that are really vowels. And uh, the first one is yud. Remember, if there's a dot following it or two dots, it's either e or a. So every yud is almost always e or a. And then there's a hey, that's a or aw. And then there's a vav. The way I learned it in Hebrew school growing up in Detroit was if the boy saw the cookies up on the shelf, he said, oh. If he ate all the cookies in his thing, he said, ooh. So yeah. <laughs> e, A, A, O, O, ooh. They got all the vowels. Now you can read Hebrew without the dots. Done. It's very simple. Um, now, what do you think the letters of God's holiest, most awesome name are? You guessed it. You, I'm not going to. It's too holy for me to write on the board. The, the third utterance at Sinai, you can't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, doesn't mean you can't say God damn it. You probably shouldn't, but you, you can say it religiously, Jewishly, because the word God is a generic name for a deity. But God's real name that you can't mess with is made only of vowels. And I won't write, I'll write a, a hey, a, a K instead of a hey, but you'll see hey. So it's yud, hey, vav, and another hey. Yud, hey, vav, and hey. That those, that name is uh, not pronounceable. Uh, we used to joke in rabbinic school, we call it the, the, uh, the, the Burger King name of God. Have it Yahweh's. <laughs> but it's not supposed to be pronounceable. You're not supposed to be able to say that. I mean, how would you pronounce all the vowels in any language without sounding like somebody just dropped a heavy object on your foot or you just had a great meal or great set? <laughs> so that name is so holy. How holy was it? That name is so holy that only the high priest could say it in the whole, on the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, in the holiest city, Jerusalem, in the holiest building, the temple, in the holiest room, the Devir, and he practiced it for months to be able to pronounce all the vowels at once, and he would go in there and he would say, the room in which he would say it was so holy that if Chazvesholem, the poor man, should drop dead of a heart attack while he was in there, Nobody could go inside to retrieve his corpse. So they solved the problem, says the Zohar, by tying a rope around his leg. That's how, that's pretty holy, right? That's how holy it was. He would go in there and he would try to pronounce what we call either the shame on the forash or the ineffable name of God, the awesome ultimate name of God. Scholars think it meant the one who brings into being all that is.
because the letters yud hey and vav are the root letters of the Hebrew verb to be. That's the name of your God. The one who, of being, who brings into being all that is. And the high priest would go in there and he would try to pronounce it. And if you're real quiet, I will too. I just ask to be real quiet for a second. There I said it. That's the holiest name that there is. That's the name you can't trash. That's the name you can't take in vain. That is the name of your God, the one who brings into being all that is. That name, Yud, Hey, Vav, and Hey. So, back to our second paragraph. Start at the beginning of the order was reading. Note that, please. Aleph and a Dalit. Go ahead. To show that the Lord of the whole world is among them. Rabbi Levi offered another explanation of this. Tablet of the Shah. Shame on the Forash, the ineffable name of God, the most awesome name of God. So what happened at Sinai now, he says, was open-heart surgery for the Jews. Cardiac surgery, right? And God wrote his initials on there. That's a lovely piece of poetry. And it sort of rings true with what I suspect what may have happened at Sinai as well. But that's just for, that's just when he gets started with his teaching. Now we're into the teaching that he wants to give. Can we have a new reader? Paragraph 3. It seems to me that this can be understood according to something I once heard from the mouth of my revered master and teacher, Rabbi Mendel Ramanov. 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 So now we got no, we got the teaching. Go ahead. His memory is a blessing. He explained the verse in Psalm 62:12. One thing God has spoken, but two things. I have heard. Whoa, somebody tell me what they get out of that. Don't be profound. Just the first thing that pops into your head. Famous teaching. The You have one mouth and two ears? One mouth and two ears, not bad. More? Can't hear you. Some things can be taken two different ways. Double entendre, not bad. Good, good, yeah. Everything has a subtext. Are you in the legal profession? <laughs> Good. Right. More anybody else? Yeah. God is unity. We live in diversity. God is you. You're a Kabbalist. Now I like it. No, God is unity and we are diversity. Absolutely. Lovely. Lovely. Anybody else? What could be gematrion? There's a lot of ways to draw. It, it's interesting. I want to talk to Christian groups. I have to point out to them that Jews have fundamentalism just like Christians do. I mean, I'm not proud of this, but our fundamentalism has one curveball that usually Christian fundamentalism doesn't. We assume, Jewish fundamentalists, that God said literally everything that says God said. But we assume that if God said it, it couldn't just mean what it says. 
Because <laughs> it's God talking, and he's really smart. And when God says stuff, man, it goes in a lot of directions. You can never tell where it's going to land. One thing that two things. Well, let's just see. He's introducing the possibility of multifaceted meanings, right? Okay, keep going. It is possible, he taught, that at Sinai we heard nothing from the mouth of God other than the letter Aleph and the first utterance, I am the Lord your God. As we just said on the board, that's as far as the story that Sholem quotes that I just told you. That's where we got it, and everything after that is going to be wide through the under. Okay? Questions up to there? Okay, new reader. What? Yep. No, you, you know, you, you, it's, it's okay. You don't have to worry about throwing it off. I'm a professional. I won't let you get away with it. Okay? The answer is there are a gazillion names for God. That's not on the topic now. Okay, just another name for God. Just just another one of hundreds of names for God. That's all. Where is it on the holy scale? I always oh. No, not very holy. Just a nice name. But, but. The word Shaddaiim does mean breasts. El Shaddai, God of breasts, not my idea. A lot of people have noticed that before. And it loves to be on the doorways to houses on your mezuzah. Yeah. Okay. Next paragraph. Oh, how beautiful. Somebody. Somebody back here I can see. Yeah, lady in the back. Ah, uh, so that's just a little, <laughs> um, that's what you say to your rabbi after a good sermon. <laughs> Don't say I loved it. Don't say it was nice. That's really an insult. The rabbi stayed up late trying to make you mad. They're trying to get you to think, oh, it was very nice of you. Oh, terrible. <laughs> Best thing to do would be to just quote the Hebrew Bible. Heschel once said his goal in life was never to say anything that hadn't been written in the Hebrew Bible first, to be that fluent with the Hebrew Bible. How he would have ordered a pastrami sandwich, I do not know. <laughs> but that's just a little flourish. He's, oh my God, yeah, it's so beautiful. All right, keep going. And to understand that the holy teaching is like hearing the words of the living God, for his words. And now remember, we're now, we're now in quoting Jeremiah. Behold, my word is like fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that shatters rock. Wow, so what do you get from that? Somebody tell me what they think it means. Powerful. Powerful, yeah, good, yeah, come on. Spark. Spark, something on a spark, cool, yeah, yeah. Changes things irrevocably, you'll hear We've all experienced somebody who said something to us and we realized after they said it, oh, things aren't going to be the way they ever were again. Because of that word, just went right into me. Sort of redid some rewriting. Yeah, nice. Anybody else? I once had somebody, I asked them this question, they read that verse, they said, I think it means that that's why there's so many Jewish attorneys. Because <laughs> the word just busts things open. For us, those words are really important. Okay, uh, new reader. We can now understand the apparent contradiction between the passages in Deuteronomy 
stop there. I, I get to do my uh, Peter Falk Colombo imitation. <laughs> okay, so I'm just looking at those two verses. This is a classic form of Jewish teaching. If God gave the whole Torah, then any contradiction must only be because I'm clued, because I'm dense, because it couldn't be that God would deliberately contradict. Now, I love, or the tradition loves to take two verses that contradict one another and hit them together as hard as it can to see what kind of sparks are going to fly. Do you notice a contradiction there between those two verses? from Deuteronomy 5.4 and from Deuteronomy 4.15. Columbo. Now, let me just get this straight now. I'm sorry, I know it's crazy, but it says, it says, it says you saw no, he wrote this down, I got it in my notes. Most of it. Yeah, it says, you saw no image when you saw God. And then it says, wait a minute, the other day he said, you saw God face to face. No image, face to face. Could you walk me through that again? <laughs> Which was it? Was it no image, or was it face to face? Uh, I once uh, was talking with one of my uh, dear friends and colleagues, Rabbi Eddie Feld. He's uh, just uh, finished translating the new conservative Siddur. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. I, I think it's hitting the bookstores pretty soon. And uh, Eddie, Eddie points out to me once, it was a lovely insight. He said that you know, it's not quite like what happened at Mount Sinai is that clear in the Torah. Uh, you know, because, well, how about this one? What happens if you see God? You die. You die. Well, but then again, a couple of weeks ago, the end of Parashah Mishpatim, it says Moses and Aaron and the elders went up on the mountain and had lunch with God. Could you walk me through that again? Like, wait, did you have lunch with them or you died? You didn't die. They came back down, they had lunch. Nobody paid the tab, I don't know, they did the whole thing. Or, as a matter of fact, did God speak from outsiders, God an inside voice? Here is what Eddie's theory is, and I think it's really beautiful. He says is that whoever put the final copy of the Torah in its form had a bunch of different texts together and realized that a lot of the stories that came from Mount Sinai disagreed with one another. How about this? I can prove it to you. Have you ever gone on a romantic weekend? Don't raise your hand. Now, may I get interview you and find out from you what happened on a weekend? Good. Now do you mind if I take a deposition from the person with whom you went on the weekend? How many people think they will be the same account? From this we can learn the holier the event the more likely the people who are there are to disagree about what really happened. So the guy or the gal who put together the final version of the Torah, being a literary genius, kept them all, but brilliantly separated each one by a few chapters or a few books. So by the time you've read the whole Torah, we say, and what happened to Mount Sinai? You say, he said, I don't know. <laughs> You're not supposed to know. You're not supposed to be sure. It's bigger than can be than, than can be exhausted in a simple, single, linear, uh, linear account. It was just much bigger than that. So God spoke to us face to face, and we saw a new image. That's just laying there. That's in the category of, I don't get what's going on yet. 
I feel like he's throwing one crazy verse off the wall after another to me. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. I mean, the, the answer to your question and to the others, you're right, you're right, and you're right too. Because we don't know. But he's, that's not going to stop Mendel Torm of rhyming out. He's still going full steam. Uh, let's see where I am. Okay. Um, oh, the last phrase. There was uh, the one paragraph from the bottom, the last sentence. There was nothing that could be seen but a voice which could be a reference to garlic. <laughs> <laughs> or it could refer to what mystics call synesthesia. Synesthesia is a mental state in which you are of such a high awareness that you are able to process sensory data normally reserved for one sense with another sense. So you could taste colors, see sounds. Everybody agrees. When you get on that certain level, it's no longer just seeing and hearing. Stuff is coming at you in a lot of different directions. And we Jews want to say, and you can guess part of where he's going. You're going to say, a lot of that was going on for us at Mount Sinai. All right, last paragraph on that side, new reader. Please, sir. To say in before you in Hebrew is shiviti. Anybody ever heard the word shiviti? Yes. Shiviti refers to setting the Lord before you. And that verse from the Psalms is frequently written in beautiful calligraphy with designs. And you hang it on the wall, on the eastern wall, so you have something better to look at than the new wall hanging TV there when you're davening in the morning. And that, so what you're doing is, you're looking at the verse that says, I put the Lord before me all the time, and on it is written, yod heh and you're saying it, and you're putting the Lord before you when you pray. It's a neat little Jewish thing. You several of you probably have shivitis and don't know it. You thought it was a beautiful thing you bought in Israel and you hung on the wall, but remember to face it when you pray. That's what a shiviti is. But he says, no, we can also understand this, that somehow it's a great principle of the Torah. Think about it. I set the Lord before me continually. If I asked you to come up with, you're a pretty literate crowd, you've been working with Shmuley for three years or whatever, and if I asked you to come up with a, a great principle of the Torah, you might, you have a lot of things you could come up with, but nobody would come up with this one. Like I set the Lord before me continually, what kind of a principle? That's in the category of what's this coming from, what's he's doing with, it's on the table in the back of your mind. Finish the paragraph, reader. One might think they would have said that serving God was something similar to the great principle. It becomes clear when we read it in light of the tradition in our Mitzvah or ethical literature. Okay, so we don't know what that means yet either. Next page. Listen, everybody. Shame, as in 
Farage, the awesome. Perfect. I mean, oh, it's fantastic. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to show you now. This is how, this is how tradition, tradition does this puppy. Take away. That's what I owe you, Dad. And what I can do is, I can take, he said, Yudhe points at the letter in the name of God. So I'm going to take the letter Vav. I'll make, and I'm going to tip it forward just a little bit. Everybody see that? Mm -hmm. I'll take the letter Yud. This is an old classic way to make the letter Alv. There's a Yud. And I'll make another Yud upside down. But because a Yud can go both ways, you don't know what's up to Well, I got an Alv, but who cares? Ah. Now if I take Yud, Hey, Vav, and Hey. Yud. Gematrius. Yud. Somebody. Ten. Hey. Five. Vav. Six. Hey. Five. Total. Twenty-six. Did you know that Sephardim don't give tzedakah in eighteen-dollar increments? Really, they don't. Eighteen. Yud chet chai. That's where it comes from. That's gematria. That's why we. That's how we got to the eighteen. They don't do that. They give money in. Twenty-six dollar increments, much better, and they get more in sabaka. So you might want to make a lot more sense, right? So, but I'm not done. What did we say yud was? Ten. Ten. You have ten. Vav. Six. Twenty-six. Now, twenty-six. Twenty-six. Whenever I start to get into numbers like that, you know, okay, now the reason I remember a t-shirt I saw in Cape Cod, must have been 20 years ago, t-shirt said, 24 hours in a day, 24 beers in a case. Coincidence? <laughs> 26, 26, isn't that a little, it's a stretch, you know, I mean, we're really, we're really pushing things quite a bit here, but here's what I do believe. As a student of intellectual history, and you may have discovered the same thing, that what one generation regards as rock-solid, iron, indestructible logic, a couple generations later winds up being, you know, fodder for their version of Saturday Night Live. So I get to a person. I don't quite care how they get there. What I care is what they want to do. And what he wants to say is that there is, and it's not a stretch. I mean, it, you can't study Kabbalah and hit the number 26 and not have to stand up and take a deep breath and walk around the table a couple of times. It is the biggest Jewish number. Yeah, forget 613, forget 18. 26 dudes, that's the big number. And that he's saying that the numerical equivalent of the biggest name for God is somehow mysteriously connected with the letter Aleph, which has no sound, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And even though you don't like numerology, you think Gamatri is a bunch of hooey, you gotta agree with me that that first letter Aleph is a mysterious letter. Sound of 
barely audible, and the name of God, barely audible, the sound of breathing. And he says, guys, they're connected somehow. I mean, if somebody, if a buju came and told you that, you'd say, oh yeah, that sounds kind of cool. But you can't, you can't talk that way anymore. So where were we? So keep reading. as we've already said, right? Okay? Now, fasten your seatbelts. He ain't done yet. He's still going. Okay? A new reader. <clears throat> this in turn ends at the face of the human being. We have liftoff. <laughs> the two eyes resemble two-letter God. Everybody with me on that? The shape of the letter U? Yeah? That could be two eyes. Okay. Unless you're a Jewish man over 70, in which case it looks like a tzadi, you know. <laughs> in other words, on every human being, there is a letter Aleph. Wow! Two you. Wait, uh, here you go. Here's an exercise. Just do this kind of surreptitiously. Just sort of, don't turn your head, but glance around the room and check. <laughs> two eyes, yeah. She's got two eyes, two eyes. Nose, yeah, right there. Two eyes and a nose. Two yuds and a vav, 26. On every face is an olive. Total value, 26. Therefore, 26 on every human face is the name of the holiest name of God. He is saying so far. So don't take my word for it. Anytime you're not sure about the face, you could look. Anybody will do. The hard news is, of course, it's including people who are you are convinced are your spiritual inferiors. Yep, two yards. And above, and if nobody's around, you can look in the mirror. Right there, read the, name, the holiest name of God. Keep reading. is the name of God. Don't take my word for it. Check anybody else. Written right there, smack dab in the middle of your bottom is God's name. And when you look at another human being, if you are spiritually alert and alive, you see that, and it changes you every time you see that. Keep going. Okay, up to there. Questions? Yeah. What about the mouth? What about the mouth? Doesn't count. <laughs> it's a signal to you and me to shut up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, there's no end to it. You know, what you do is, I mean, somebody wants to, what about a dog? My dog is too high. There's no end to it. Let the guy do what he's doing. But okay, yeah, anybody else? Okay, next paragraph. 
effulgence. I love that word. It's an SAT word. Remember that funny verse at the bottom of the preceding page? Keep that in front of you always. What does it mean now? Look at people. Look at people until you can see the name of God on their face. That's the whole Torah, guys. And all you need to remember is all we got at Sinai was an olive. And the olive is made of two yuds and above, two eyes and a nose, 26 God's name right on your face, and you got the whole Torah every time. Lazy man, lazy woman's Torah intro. Keep reading. Love it. One more paragraph. Somebody else. This is what our sages meant when they spoke of the great principle of the Torah. Taka, that's a great principle. Stop there, you notice there's a little bit, of, little bit of synesthesia again. That's a direct quote from Exodus. It says the people saw the thunder. But what is he playing with here? What he's playing with is, is we could see what could normally only be heard. You can't barely hear God, you can't barely hear an olive, but you can see it. And then every time you look at another human face, you reenact the Sinai moment. I'll finish it up. In other words, they saw what was heard. We saw the form of the letter Aleph itself evoking the name of God. And at that moment, they all saw and understood that this was the form on their own faces. And this then is the reason that we read just after the theophany in Exodus. Don't be afraid. God has only come in order to test you and in order that the fear of God may ever be with you so you don't go astray. For when a person continually keeps this idea that God is in the face of every human being, then he or she will be much less likely to act like a schmuck. <laughs> there end of the teaching. I'm all yours for questions, comments, stories. It's a lovely uh, gentleman in the back draws. It, it, it's, uh, I don't know if this is old or new, but it shows up in a lot of places. And uh, you can uh, make a human being by making a yud, and I'll make it a K, but a hey, and a vav, 
and another head. So a head, shoulders, two arms, a torso, hips, and two legs. Yeah. Reverend. something that you and I were talking about at dinner and with some of your fellows just before the seminar. It's the easiest way to explain it. There are two ways to understand our relationship with God. Uh, the first one, God's a big circle up here, and you and I are a little circle down here. Because it's vertical, uh, it's inescapably hierarchical and generically masculine. Welcome to Western theology. God's a big circle up there, we're down here. Turns out there's another way to understand our relationship to God that's been around as long as this one, maybe even longer. Just hasn't received the same kind of press and it's harder to explain at dinner parties, which is probably the main reason not as many people know about it. Here's the big circle that's God. And now the little circle that's you and me, inside the big circle. That's the whole difference. In that model, God is all there is. And you and I, right now, in this room, are within the divine. We are manifestations of it. And that the name of the game is to realize that. Just for a split second, then it's gone. I'm, I'm an advocate of what I call quickie, everyday, garden-variety, mystical moments. I'm not talking about moments where the roof flies off the building and all of a sudden you hear the Mormon tabernacle singing Handel's Hallelujah Chorus and light streams out of your facial apertures. I, I, I never had that. I, I, I hope I do. I hope you do, but the odds are against it. I'm, in, I, I, I'm an advocate of... Just a quickie, like, oh, just for a second. Like, if you weren't careful, you might have thought it was something you ate. You know? <laughs> or just a funny thing, you know, just, you know, just, a, just a quick, but for that split second, there's no you there anymore. There's just awareness without an ego. Simply the divine all, and the you who is not there is part of that divine all. And it's over, oh, what was that? And it's me again. I believe, and that's what led me to mysticism, to Kabbalah, the Jewish version of mysticism. And I believe that that's probably a vital dimension of spiritual fulfillment for a lot of people. And it's very Jewish. It's been down here, been around all along. said you saw no image and the other one said you saw God face to face. No, there was nothing in a, tell you a story if I may. Let me just interrupt for one second. It's a story makes the point. Um, I was working with um, 
See, it was, it was fourth graders. I was sitting in my office at the temple when I used to, when I was in the retail end of the rabbinate. <laughs> and um, uh, I, I always was trying to be in my office when the school was in session. People would say, Rabbi, you work so hard. I say, why? They say, because whenever I come here, you're, you're at the temple. I say, that's because I know when you're going to come here. <laughs> the teacher comes running down and says, quick, we need you right away from the fourth grade. It was like I got beat. You know, oh, run down. It was a bunch of fourth graders. And uh, I fall back on an old pedagogic trick. Uh, I say, tell me what you know about God. One kid said, God is one. I go, got that right. You know, made the world. I write that, you know. Then another kid says, God is good. sometimes an hour and a pop. I mean, I'm heavily into it. But I, I got to say, um, I, I, everybody should meditate, but it's in the same category with the low cholesterol diet, plenty of exercise, and a good night's sleep. It's just good for you. Um, I have, and, and the Jews obviously have sat still and been silent, but we never did with it what the Buddhists do. And that we are in, it's an exciting time to be Jews because Jews are trying to figure out a way to Judaize meditation. But a, but a candid, dispassionate review of history is there ain't much meditation in Jewish history. Our meditation was pondering a biblical text, our meditation was humming a wordless melody. But the way it's commonly used today, we have, in my humble opinion, have not figured out a way to make it Jewish yet. I hope we do soon, because it's a neat thing. I, but I interrupted you. Did you want to? OK. Yes, Lee. The opposite of that silence is that it's static things that happen when people come together joyfully, singing, dancing, where you're outside of yourself in that. The opposite of the silence, but transcendence is 
in both of those cases, in meditative stillness, mindfulness, and in ecstasy, group ecstasy, whatever it is, both share in common the goal of all mystical, and I would respectfully submit all religious endeavor, and that is to um, lose your ego, to get rid of the sucker, to shoot it, make it go away. Yeah. the form of meditation, but I, I, what I would say is, in my own experience too, um, it's not so much mindful or mindless, it's egolessness. I, I think we would, we, 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 we would agree on that, and that Buddhist tradition, Eastern traditions, like Jewish traditions, have come up with their own ways of trying to exit the ego. I was talking with some of the fellows earlier about how the goal of every any time you do a mitzvah is to get to a point where, yeah, we were talking about, yeah, the, the, the goal is to somehow say, it's an honor to serve you, God. I'm no longer in business for myself. I no longer think I'm running things. Uh, I want to do, wait, when my, my wife uh, is here, and I will uh, tell this story again. Um, it's one of my favorite, it's a true story. Um, when, when Karen was pregnant with our second child, uh, we lived in a little shoebox of an apartment in Marlboro, Massachusetts. And uh, Karen was like in her sixth or seventh month, and it was cold, snowy, and we'd gone to bed at 10 o'clock, 10.30. Around 11.30, Karen wakes me up. I say, what's the matter, honey? And she says, you know, I, I can't, I don't, I, I know it's, I'm embarrassed, I, but, but I, but the chocolate, I would love her. Chocolate, chocolate with almonds. Well, yeah, it's a strange craving of a pregnant woman, you know. Before she can even enunciate the request, I'm putting my Levi's on over my pajamas and my snow parka, remember those? And my down hood and the goggles and the gloves and the galoshes. And I run outside and it's been snowing for four years. Six inches of wet, sloppy stuff. I get the car cleaned off, I get the ignition. Where the hell am I gonna find a church ship? I want almonds at midnight in Marlboro. But I remember I'm a man on a mission, I remember. Holiday Inn on 4.95 as a candy machine. True story. And I figure the night clerk sees this bizarre scene. Car skips to stop in blizzard. Man in pajamas runs in, punches all his cold quarters into the candy machine, puts the box of waves, jumps, drives off the bank, gives care of it, jogging. She's fine. The baby lives in Berkeley. He's married to have a child. <laughs> But I tell you a story because for about a half hour, in the middle of a blizzard, like 40 years ago, I Lawrence Kushner, who normally has a very well-developed ego, thank you very much, I don't have an ego. I'm an extension of my wife's ego. I'm not doing what I want to do. I want to stay in a warm bed. No, I'm driving around in a blizzard looking for candy bars. Here's the great thing. It is more fulfilling for me 
to do what my lover wants than for me to do what I want. And that's the core of doing mitzvahs. Rabbi Nishalel, you want me to light Shabbos candles? Seems like it's cool to me. You want me to do it? I'm not me anymore. I'm an extension of my lover. And I've exited my ego, and I've attained another level of heightened spiritual awareness. And I think that I was joking with Shmuel, the bumper sticker should be, it's your ego, stupid. <laughs> That's what you gotta do. I'm not talking about it in an altruistic way either. I'm just talking about, you're not running as much as you thought you were. You're not in charge of as much as you thought you were. And your life going to be a whole lot happier if you can do more things for your lover and get your old ego out of the way. Take a couple more and then we'll start. Please. Yeah, There's a, a, there was a lot of discussion in the tradition about auras and readies who could see people and see the aura around them and read that. But I don't know much more about it than that. Yeah, please. It's in all the traditions. I mean, it's just so obvious that people would think about that and imagine it. I mean, I have a book. I, I have a book in my library. It's a Jewish who was who. That's almost entirely in the category of folk magic and superstition. And it, is, it never became part of uh, Judaism never got into the afterlife in a serious, organized way. Uh, in fact, uh, the best way to summarize is, it, is the way uh, my colleague, Rabbi Dan Polish, teaches it. He says, in Judaism, what happens is, in the afterlife, when you die, they put you in a big, easy-going recliner. And in front of you, they put a big 60-inch plasma TV <laughs> with quadraphonic surround sound, and they begin to play over and over again for eternity, a movie of everything you did in your life. Heaven, hell, you pick. <laughs> yeah. I think we are. I think, I think it's not so much uh, a central spiritual thing of the Jewish people, but historically, culturally, we became, as you say, a communal people. I mean, our idea of what to do after a mystical experience is not to found a monastery, but to go back and join a committee. <laughs> That's how we do it. Yeah, I mean, I'm a barbarian. I mean, it, it's, we're much more comfortable arguing with other people than uh, being alone and being still. Which doesn't mean we can't or shouldn't. There was somebody behind me I heard with, 
please. What is the tradition? It's the single most dangerous idea we have, and you should repudiate the whole thing. It's made a mess every time we got near it. Really. That, that's, I mean, what it is saying is that it will come in the form of just a person. Right? That's a beautiful teaching. Anybody could be it. Any woman who's pregnant could be carrying that just a person who would show us how to do it right. Huh? That's what it's saying, but beyond that, don't look for it. It'll make you nuts and make a mess of that. <laughs> that person will show us by how he or she lives and acts. There's one person. Shmuel, you get the last comment. We uh, talked a little today about historical revelation. One of the things that the Hasidic teachers emphasized was brought back to some degree was revelation in the heart of the common person. What's the nature of this revelation? It's clearly less than prophecy, but greater than just insight. What is this Hasidic theology around sort of returning revelation to our time through, through the individual Don't do it without your Rebbe. <laughs> Don't do it without a Chavrut, a study partner. Because everybody would love to be able to do it all the time. And that could make even a bigger mess than the Messiah lady. <laughs> but, but, don't shut off the voice. The one thing we have to learn from a lot of Americans is that they're willing to let God talk to them all the time. I don't quite know how they can pull that off. But I would like to get to the point in my own life where I could be more aware of my presence within the divine and then mail myself a postcard from that experience so I could read it later. And the words of the postcard would wind up being the revelation. That's a good answer. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you all very much. Thank you so much, Rabbi Krishna. That was delightfully humorous, wise. Uh, rich in sources and authentic. And you did something that Jews rarely like to do, which is talk about God um, and talk about spirituality in really authentic terms. Thank you. Um, and I want to thank Shana for flying all the way and also from the Bay to talk yes. about your parents. I want to thank the Hammerins for continuing to be role models in our community and what you do for BBM community. Thank Kamukai and uh, Joe Miller and Valet Mari for hosting and all of you for coming out to learn. These days we're doing like two or three events a week sometimes. Uh, make sure you leave with your packet for our closing two months of this season. And a lot of you continue to come out night after night. So thank you all. So, have a wonderful night.